X-ray. And welcome to the Beer Vana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-ray FM and available wherever you get your podcast. Whoops. <laughs> I already messed that up. Uh, I, was, uh, I was ready to go and then I looked at your script and it wasn't what I was saying. Um, hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Uh, <laughs> same old script. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was, my mind was ahead of the words. This is a, a particularly early recording you're doing today. That's right. On a dreary Tuesday. So that's all the fault of circumstance and not my brain that hasn't really kicked in yet. <laughs> of course. Yes. You'll never be blamed for your own mistakes. Not, uh, we, not on this podcast. <laughs> mistakes are all part of the, uh, the show. That's right. It's part of our brand. <laughs> uh, anyway, hi, uh, hi there. We're we're, uh, we're broadcasting to you today uh, from our respective homes, being uh, socially responsible, COVID distant, especially these days, given that COVID is spiking crazily all over the world, but also in Oregon. Indeed. Uh, I, I have the world's biggest cup of tea in front of me to try to get my brain gear here, but I should probably introduce you. That's the next thing on the script, at least. Excellent. <laughs> so you're Jeff Allworth, in case you hadn't checked. You've written books, Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and The Widmer Way. Uh, welcome to our show, Jeff. Thank you. You are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at our Oregon State University. Go Beavs. Go Beavs. And that's actually topical, but I should probably not jump into that. But we'll be having someone from the great Oregon State University join us today. That's right. Yeah, we're going to have an all, well, not quite all, OSU pod but uh yeah it'll be cool all right well we'll we're, we're jump we're stepping on ourselves though <laughs> we haven't done our our little pitter pat uh, i can look out the window and talk about the weather that would be on brand hey you know what i have some pitter pat okay. uh, which, which is uh so we have recently here in the united states had uh an election really i think some people may be aware of that oh, i might have missed that i don't know about you but i spent most of the last week which was the week of the election as we record this obsessively pushing refresh on the 538 blog where they were updating all the uh, states as they came in and so on and i don't know did you, are, are you a 538 reader yeah based on your advice actually that's how i made it through the election you said i just tuned into nate silver and that's it and that's what, exactly what i did and that was good advice ah excellent well i don't know if you've noticed this but 538 has a mascot 5e fox uh, and it made me <laughs> no, think as not. I was watching this fox, hey, maybe the Birvana podcast needs a mascot animal. And I you thought, have suggestions. Well, you know, obviously Badger would be one way to go since we have our Wisconsin connection. Beaver would be one way to go because we have our Oregon connection. But then I throw it to you. It's what if we had a mascot for the here for the Birvana podcast? What 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 would it be? I know salmon. I <laughs> salmon uh maybe sort of something beery i wonder what exactly is beery you know I, I have been thinking a lot lately about the poor mink of denmark by the way sort of <laughs> not in terms of a, a <laughs> that, that, but, that was a that was a non-sequitur and a deep cut but go but, go man go but if, we're, but if we're speaking of animals um it's you know it's worth sparing a thought for the the massacre that's about to befall the mink. Actually, just this morning, I, I don't read, know anything. You're going to have to back up because it's not like we've just been talking about the mink of Scandinavia. You We're don't know talking. about the mink of of Denmark? Of Den oh. the, the Danish mink? No, I don't know. Man, you're heartless and cruel. So apparently, uh, these mink um, are little harbors of co of the COVID virus. It turns out, oh. and they've been spreading it amongst themselves. And mink farming is apparently a pretty big deal in Denmark. And so there are thousands tens of thousands i don't hundreds of, i don't know lots of mink <laughs> and so the government has said we must kill every single mink in denmark Ooh. in captivity yeah uh, wow. although i will just i'll say that i was scrolling and i don't really actually didn't read the article but i saw the headline that apparently there's some now question whether the government has the legal authority to order the uh, extermination of the mink uh -huh. interesting well that's quite a drama uh, it is kind of quite a drama. So, <laughs> so I guess you're, you're suggesting maybe the Danish mink as our mascot? Weirdly, I don't <laughs> oh, know well, why, but that would know, be that, right. No, that might be a little too um, uh, too depressing if, in too fact, depressing. they all get killed. 
Yeah. <laughs> there would be no Danish meat left. Uh, I'm always partial to otters. Um, I don't know. What is a good beard animal? That's a good uh, a good question for our, our listeners, I suppose. Well, I mean, a yeast cell, but that's not very interesting. No, that's not at all. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, we'll leave that open. Uh, possibly a mailbag feature if you guys have any interesting suggestions about uh, our mascot, which I, I think we should have a mascot. Really you know, it, it, would, it, would, it, would, it would represent a an elevation of our podcast into the next level, you know, like the, the tier of podcasts that include 538. <laughs> I think we should have a, yeah, you like I how think, I did that. I think we should have a big grizzly bear. The grizzly bear school. Grizzly it's bear macho. It's way, co- way cooler. We don't want a salmon. <laughs> it's way cooler than a yeast cell. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Speaking of animals, uh, animal, uh, I have a cat that is trying to interfere with the podcast. There we go. I was about to start tippity tapping on my computer, which could have caused uh, problems. Anyway, um, but anyway. You, you didn't want to know about the weather outside my window. It's fall. It is fall. Uh, it's wet, cool. leaves everywhere. Winter has come, as I've been joking uh, to Sally, my wife, um, which I don't know if it's actually fall or winter, but it's, it's, uh, it's cold out there. And this has some relevance to our favorite uh, – businesses the breweries who no longer can really accommodate people or they can accommodate people but people are not coming to sit out in the drizzle and the the chill and all it is pretty gross out there it is quite cold and wet that sort of wet that kind of scottish cold as i call it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right it's very scottish cold out there (laughs) like wisconsinites would say oh this isn't cold this is only 45 degrees but yeah, you sit there when it's 100% humidity and it's 45 degrees. It's pretty cold. It has a way of just seeping into your bones. It does. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I do worry, uh, and I know they're worried, and they're trying to figure out like what's the best solution. What's what are what? How much enclosure are people comfortable with? How much enclosure do you need to actually make people comfortable weather-wise? Uh, it's tricky. Yeah. All right. Well. Okay, so what, now that we've, now we've talked about the great mink extermination and we've talked about the the financial troubles that breweries are about to hit in the winter, uh, what other pleasant topic can we talk about? I, I think we should move on. This is getting depressing. We're we're going to depress our leader, our reader, our <laughs> listeners about before we even get any into this. And we have a great show today. <laughs> the problem is we're doing this too early. We haven't even been able to drink any beer and make life yeah. better. Better. Yeah. We're just sitting here with our coffee and tea and. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this is this is like the worst start to the podcast ever. Indeed. So let's move it. Move. Let's move to the better subject, which we have a great topic today, don't we? Yes. Uh, so on today's show, we're going to discuss one of the most interesting projects in the beer world, the Oregon Hops and Brewing Archive. On hand is the architect of that project and its archivist, Tia Edmondson Morton. The archive, founded in 2013 and housed at Oregon State University my employer, (laughs) contains extensive records of published books and periodicals, photographs, and memorabilia. In addition, Tia has initiated a collection of oral histories with brewers, growers, scientists, with a special focus on women who have worked in the industry. It's a hugely valuable resource, not just for Oregonians, but beer fans everywhere. We will talk to Tia later, but first, we have the news. We have another acquisition to report, but this one comes with a fascinating twist. On November 4, Canadian cannabis company Afria, I don't know how you pronounce that, Af- announced Afria perhaps. Afria, Afria announced it had purchased Atlanta Sweetwater, the 24th largest brewery in the United States. In a surprisingly transparent press release, Afria reported its desire to use Sweetwater to, quote, accelerate our entry into the U.S. cannabis market and hinted that Sweetwater's deal with Delta Airlines might be part of the strategy. (laughs) So uh, you might Uh, might be getting uh, something special on uh, Delta when you fly (laughs) the friendly skies in the future. That might be very friendly. I guess Uh, that's the wrong company, but hey. Yeah, the problem is Delta operates sort of under federal regulation, um, so that yes. might prohibit. I, its... I, I... <laughs> but I was confused. Yeah, I mean, I saw your tweet about this, and I was confused, just confused, because I, I, uh, I think cannabis beer has sort of been a fantasy that 
I'm not sure how close it really comes to reality. And then Sweetwater is a brewery. I mean, not particularly. Yeah, I was just confused. Yeah, I think I think the idea is probably to do something like CBD water or something like that to get, you know, to 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 get that on a, a legal product yeah. in front of consumers. Um, I, I'm I'm not totally sure what the big strategy is there, but I I found it interesting that they would even mention that in the press release, which you know hints at a strategy that they have at least. Right. I mean, the idea that I'm we're going to buy a fairly large brewery to accelerate our entry into the U.S. cannabis market is curious. Indeed. Does Sweetwater offer a cannabis beer? Well, their branding is super cannabis friendly and has been forever. So they have like 420 IPA and a bunch of stuff like that. So that that was a you know pretty if you're going to buy a brewery, you're going to buy <laughs> that's the uh, one Sweetwater. to buy. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Exactly. They're in Georgia. Georgia doesn't have recreational cannabis yet, does it? No idea. You're correct. They are in they're in Atlanta, and I don't know anything about Georgia cannabis laws. Yeah. All right. So. Well, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Indeed. Uh, and we'll see what Delta Airlines thinks about it. <laughs> by and the way. Delta might have been very, very surprised by this announcement. This is totally random, but it's an old man thing. Do you remember when Delta had uh, their, their, their motto was, we get you there? Delta, we get you there. <laughs> yes, I do remember this. <laughs> the worst ever. Eh, we get you there. Well, this this is probably during a time of like on-time arrivals. It was about like 50% average in the U.S. market. Right. <laughs> so maybe that was, in fact, an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. All right. <laughs> we got you here. Maybe not with your bags, but what else do you want? Come on. Yeah, we got you here. <laughs> All right. Another very big news, Massachusetts-based importer Shelton Brothers announced the abrupt end to their 24-year-old business. The company was carrying debt when the coronavirus hit earlier this year and sales plummeted. Berkshire Bank now owns the assets to every last paperclip, owner Dan Shelton said ruefully. Shelton had the most expansive portfolio, running to 150 breweries from 20-plus countries, including gems like Cantillon, uh, you'll have to help me, Diranca. Yeah, I think they say just Diranc. Diranc. Brasserie de la Seine. Uh, Timothy Taylor, Thierrier, 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 and Mars. It sent shockwaves through the industry and left retailers scrambling. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, it really sucks. Uh, you know, not not just for uh, the uh, Shelton Brothers, of course, but for all those retailers and everybody who's a fan of all those beers. Timothy yeah. Taylor uh, does Landlord, which is, of course, a very famous uh bitter um and then i think people are probably familiar with some of those other ones uh so yeah it's really bad and i mean i guess this is a an opportunity for new reach uh, new importers to start but i think it also kind of suggests the sort of woeful state of uh foreign breweries right now it, uh, selling beer in the united states it's just yeah tough. No. oh sorry i didn't mean to step on you there nope so i'm done i just mean to, to say that yeah it's it's becoming becoming a much different landscape with all these local craft brewers, right? Like, I don't need to go to uh, Cantillon to get a great Belgian or or uh, Timothy Taylor to get a, well, maybe I do. <laughs> maybe that one I do. <laughs> right. But I, I just mean that uh, I wonder, you know, that their troubles predated COVID and that probably suggests that uh, craft brew has made importing much harder. Yeah, I think so. And this, this does trouble my heart a little bit uh the idea that that americans are no longer interested in what the rest of the world is doing it's not actually surprising to me um it's kind of what happens when you develop beer culture you become less interested in what the rest of the world is doing and yet as a person who writes about beer uh and has traveled to a lot of seen a lot of these cool breweries i it it hurts my heart so yeah i hope i hope it's cyclical i hope people get uh, Americans get interested once again in some of these classic breweries and uh, hope they find a market here. Yeah. In economics terms, it's whether these uh, beers are complements or substitutes. So I would hope that eventually they would come back to be complementary items that if you're seeing a, a local version of a Belgian beer, for example, you might want to go check out the originals and right. vice versa. So hopefully we'll get back to that point. Indeed. Well, right. I think I think our guest is arriving here on Zencaster. So let's let's pause for a moment and uh, we'll come back and interview archivist Tia Edmondson Morton.
Okay, today we're delighted to have uh, Tia Edmondson-Morton with us. Uh, Tia is one of those unsung heroes contributing an enormous amount to the world of beer through her work creating an archive of brewing and hop growing in Oregon. In addition to her master's in library science and archivist certification, Tia has a master's in English literature. She's also an instructor at OSU, oversees her department's intern program, and, and this is Jeff's favorite, of course, a blogger for the archive. Uh, <laughs> welcome, Tia. Did, did we get that pretty accurate? Yeah, yes. I, I feel like uh, the introduction of my name and my archive and my uh, duties often takes longer than anything else. Oh, well, I hope not, because we have a lot to ask you about. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you, are you uh, talking to us from your uh, office now? I am not. I'm talking to you from my room. Okay. We were just discussing before we went on air that uh, some of us have access to our offices at Oregon State and some of us don't. I'm one who doesn't. Yes. <laughs> I spend most of my time at my house in my room. Uh, <laughs> away from your archives. Ah, uh, COVID. We're all, we're all in our homes. Always in our homes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tia, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit before we get into this wonderful archive that you've uh, curated and, and assembled. Uh, let's hear a little bit about your background. I mentioned, we mentioned in the, uh, the intro that you have uh, a degree in English lit, which I was curious about because I also have uh, a background in studying English, but then you got into archiving. So tell us a little bit about your background and how, how you came to become an archivist. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Oregon. Um, my family has been in Oregon for a very, very, very long time. Um, and I really loved reading. I was, I, I got my degree in English literature for the reason that a lot of people do, <laughs> that I loved reading. Um, and I have always been a big reader. Um, I started at the University of Oregon because I grew up in Eugene. Uh, and then as the, the sort of, it, it sounds more fairy tale, I suppose, than it is, but I met a boy and I went to Ohio because I wanted to go somewhere that was not Oregon. Uh, did not stay with that boy, um, but I got a job uh, at the university, at Miami University. I got a full-time job, and that meant that I um, could essentially get my master's degree for free. All we paid was half of the general fee as full-time employees. So I worked at night, and I went to school during the day, and I, I did. I loved graduate school. I still love reading, but the reality of the job market um, and the honesty, frankly, of the professors that I had was that it would be really, really difficult to make a career as an English literature professor. Um, and I didn't really know what to do then. <laughs> uh, so my dad, um, who still lives in Eugene, has always been really involved in politics. And at that time, when I was kind of casting about, he was on the state library board and was telling me about this when I was back visiting for a trip. And it was this like sort of light bulb of, wait a minute, I could I could be a librarian. <laughs> That's the best. Then I get to be around books all the time. So I... Um, kind of around the same time was in a class that took a field trip to Chicago to the Newberry Library. And we were given an archives instruction session, which is very funny to think back on now um, who, as the person who does those. And um, we had a, a, an array of things out on the desk in front of us during the session. And one of those was this prayer book that was a Queen Elizabeth prayer book. And it was very small, and they said, oh, she used to put it in her pocket. And it kind of blew my mind that somebody had saved this, that somebody had saved this thing that this woman who clearly was really important to history, but also like had pockets to put books in. <laughs> and I decided that that was the, within the library field that I also was really hooked by archives. Um, and moved to the Bay Area, finished up my lit degree um, from Miami and started a library program after a bit. I was a gardener. I was a nanny. I did all the things that were not English, English lit or library science grad school. Um, but I went to library school and I loved it. I, I loved um, the idea of um, saving things. I was really into access. Um, I was really into, I'd, I'd written my thesis on censorship, my master's thesis in literature on um, censorship of lesbian literature in the modernist period. Didn't actually use that many archives, ironically, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, but I 
I knew that I wanted to be in archives and I knew that I was really concerned um, with how people accessed information and who saved information, which is one of those kind of through lines that I think has certainly um, become an important part of my life and my work now. Um, I moved back to Oregon 16 years ago, almost, almost exactly. Um, with my daughter, who was under a year at that time, um, lived in, in Eugene for a bit, uh, and I worked at the Lane Community College archives and then got my job um, at the OSU archives in 2006. So I've been at the library for a long time doing very different things. <laughs> um, gotcha. So it was, uh, if if the records that I have are correct. It was 2013 when you started the, yeah. the brewing archive. Um, how did that come about? What, what made you think yeah, that we needed to have I, a brewing archive? Um, so I'd been, it, I had this sort of funny aha this, this summer actually, that I'd been running OBA for half of my career at OSU, which kind of blew my mind because it didn't seem like it had been that long. Um, and I, I think, what did I do before? Um, so I was actually hired to be the student supervisor and the reference desk archivist. That was that was why they hired me in, in 2006. And um, I got really hooked on and really into doing outreach and instruction. And so I've, I've had many different hats um, since since I was hired, had different duties since I was hired. Um, I, I kind of, it, it, it was almost like a classic seven year itch, honestly, of I'd been working at the archives. I, I was doing a lot of teaching and a lot of outreach and I wanted something different. I think, you know, I wanted something where I actually felt like an archivist again. Um, and while certainly being an instruction archivist and teaching people about our collections is not not being an archivist, but I wanted to put stuff in boxes again. I wanted to put stuff in folders. That was like I wanted to talk to people about their records. So I um, was kind of just honestly casting about again, thinking about what is it that I want to do. I was not mid-career, but I was an early career um, our department had reorganized and there was sort of more opportunity for me to think about what it was and how I wanted to do and how I fit in the department. So I went to uh, a wedding. These are my, my two things that led to the archive. Um, I went to this wedding, uh, an archivist and a librarian that I knew were getting married. Um, and it was at the Rogue Hop Farm. And I just distinctly remember getting a tour. Um, I can't remember what the guy's name was. I think it was Nick Cronin at the Rogue Hop Farm who worked there at the time. Um, and he was giving us a tour and telling us like the inside of like a, the hops processing area. And um, I remember just thinking like everyone was transfixed by this history, that it was, it was such an interesting um, but also really important history for Oregon and agriculture and a reflection on how that history ties into the present. And in 2013, I think we all sort of thought that um, beer in Oregon would only get more and more and more and more and more. <laughs> um, and that there was this sort of, you know, endless trajectory up. Um, so that happened. And I, I remember somebody turned to me and said, man, this is a good story. And I said, yeah. And they said, somebody should have an archive on this. And I, I, was, I was very cynical. And I said, yeah, right, that won't happen. Um, so then kind of around that same time in that same summer, I went to this Archives Leadership Institute in Iowa and um, hung out with these two other people who were doing work related to archives and alcohol, alcohol documentation, I guess. One was the wine archivist at Linfield College and the other um, worked in Kentucky and he just finished this huge project for um, doing oral histories in the bourbon industry. And I, hmm. I, I was like, wait, you can do this? This is <laughs> like, I, this is a really good idea. Um, and so I put my, my cynicism of like, nobody will ever say yes to that. So I went, I came back um, to my boss and I said, I, I think somebody should do this. And he said, do you want to? And I said, okay. Um, and it really, as far as like higher education and projects go, it was, it was really easy. Like they just said, okay. <laughs> um, 
And I think it made sense. You know, OSU certainly has had um, a really, really important impact for for you know, that 100 and I'm going to do math, 140 years, I think, is when they started doing hops research in the 1880s. Um, up to present where certainly barley hops and um, fermentation science is such an important program. Um, so it kind of made sense, but it, it was, it has changed my career and the trajectory of my career in a way that I never, I, I never expected. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I think that's I the thing that I, I, I had no idea how to make an archive. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you have an idea now and then you have to think, what do I put in yeah. it? Who do I talk to? Um, yeah. where, where did you start? I started honestly with outreach. <laughs> um, I, lo- I do love to talk. Um, and I actually I knew um, Carl Okert's daughters worked for me um, when they were they they were. Um, at OSU, and I they, they let me let me just interrupt to say for our listeners that Carl Okert is the founding brewer of, of Bridgeport Brewing, yes, the first craft brewery. In um, so his daughters worked for me um, when they were in school, and I taught a class that they took. And I remember them telling me, "Our dad's a brewer," and I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and then you know, ten years later, it was like, "Oh my God, he was a brewer. He is a brewer." He was, he was the, he was yeah, the brewer. Like he was kind of the guy to know. Um, so, uh, so I talked to him. There was another book that had, um, was kind of almost done Peter Cup's um, Hoptopia book. And he had used the archives um, for his dissertation. So I, I knew a couple of people and it was really like, does this sound like a good idea? <laughs> um, and they said, yes. Um, and then I talked to some people that I, that I, I, I knew, I reached out to some of the people who worked at OSU to see whether they thought it was a good idea. Um, so honestly, I just started talking to people. Um, Carl gave me a couple of suggestions. Now I'm not even remember who he suggested that I contact. Um, but I, um, I started talking to people and writing about the research that I was doing. Um, we had this event, like a, a launch party event. I called it the Oba Prom. Um, and I invited a bunch of people to my party that I didn't know. It was a very sort of odd thing now in hindsight for me to do. Um, but we had this event at McMiniman's um, Mission Theater Pub and invited a bunch of people and had a panel with John Foyston. Um, and Irene Fermat and Peter was there. And then um, Daniel, I'm not going to remember his last name. Sorry, Daniel, um, who now works for Nkasi, was a graduate student at OSU at the time. So he talked about his research. So I, we had this panel. I talked about the archive. Um, and around that time, I started interviewing people. And I think now in hindsight, doing those oral history interviews was um, probably one of my best decisions that I didn't know was a really good decision to make. I think it was a way of documenting an industry that is very much not archival in the sense of it's done and we put it in boxes. Right. And I think doing those interviews with people um, allowed me to connect with them for a reason. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just, I'm somebody who wants to come in and take your stuff um or like I'm somebody who's doing this project that you didn't ask me to do, if that makes sense. Um, so I think it connected people to the, their own story and kind of made them invested in the story. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things uh, as a writer that I've learned is that particularly craft brewers don't see themselves uh, as significant in the scope of history or their projects as something that might be historically significant if significant if it survives you know more than the first few years which is what they're focused on but then uh, like Carl for example um, he's part of this brewery which uh, incredibly important brewery and, and it's now gone so uh, you know I don't know what happened to the the materials there but but we might only be left with stories so I think that yeah. Yeah, and I think the those the oral histories, and then um, honestly, the 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 news um, the news aggregate sites like New School Beer um, 
and Republic, I think they become that record too. And so the other thing that I started collecting um, early on got just sort of people, not cold calling, but kind of cold donations of um, brewing publications. And I think a lot of people had kept these brewing publications on their shelves or in boxes in their garage or, you know, or their, their, um, their closets and now had a place for them to go. Right. And so I became a sort of magazine archive. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and at first I was like, what am I doing? Like, is this, is this actually like building an archive? Like, shouldn't I be looking for, um, for like, like handwritten notes? <laughs> like, isn't, right. that, uh-huh. isn't that what, is it an archive? Shouldn't I be looking for diaries and, and letters of reflection and, um, so I, I got a lot of periodicals and I think, again, the, the thing that I now understand is how important that was. And those, those um, early periodicals and those publications for magazines that are now gone, like All About Beer um, and Draft Magazine, that I'm, I feel really fortunate to have those, the hard copies of those um, yeah. and, and smaller newsletter kind of things too that are, are more regional, smaller run newsletters that really become a, a vital record of the industry um, in the, the late 1970s through the early 1980s. Um, have, and that, I feel really, I'm, I'm glad I did that. Have you received donations of stuff that you've decided just doesn't meet that threshold of being sort of historically significant? And how do you make that determination? Yeah. Um, the, the funniest early conversations I had, we, we got a couple of bottles of beer um, <laughs> and, and one of, and my, my coworker who I've worked with and she's been next door to me when we went to places um, for 14 years. And she said, so I want to understand this. Uh, are we accepting beer? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, yeah. but not for the archive. <laughs> yeah. It was well, it was a very very old Cartwright bottle of beer. So uh, Cartwright Brewing, the short lived and very very important uh, first microbrewery um, in, in Oregon. So yeah. we do have a couple of bottles of Cartwright that look really disgusting, like the like the, the sediment. It's they're gross. Um, I mean, archival. So, so those kind of um, beer jokes aside, the things that we can't really take are a lot of the arc, the um, the artifactual things. So, mm. um, you know, important pieces of equipment or large, um, uh, like neon signs, the things that you would think of that would be in a museum. Those are a pretty easy hard pass. Like if it won't fit in a box on a shelf then we, I, I really think about whether to take it. Yeah. Um, we do have bottles. And the thing that, that really surprised me um, in the beginning is that a lot of people wanted to come look at the archive in a way that I don't think normal, I'm doing air quotes, normal archives um, would attract this sort of attention of people wanting to come and look at it because it's stuff in boxes. Um mm. And it's in, it's interesting, but it's visually relatively boring. Um, so I did collect bottles, and I, we do have um, some some of those kind of ephemeral items: um, t-shirts and coasters and koozies and stickers and labels. Um, so there are some things that probably I'm I'm more um, I'm more cautious, I guess, about accepting now. Um, just to make sure that it, it, it doesn't, that we still have space for things. Right. That's all I would say, you know, I, I accept a, a lot of things. I think um, I'm now at the point where I have to be thoughtful about those magazines. Um, you know, if we already have a full run of all about beer, then I don't need to accept more. Um, sometimes there are concerns because beer is a food product, um, there are some sort of preservation concerns to make sure that there aren't things that have mold on them, which has not been an issue, but these are paper things that have been in a very wet place. Right. <laughs> um, I'm definitely, yeah, I, I would say, I, I say yes most of the time. Well, one thing that uh, is super valuable, I want to talk a little bit about your collections in a minute, but just since we're on this subject, 
one thing that's super valuable that you collect are old brewing logs and brewing records. And I know that you have some breweries, uh, information, especially breweries that don't exist anymore. And, uh, these, these are for researchers, incredibly valuable resources and they are ephemeral, 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 sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a brewery called Ballantine, an old American brewery and the records for that brewery are just gone. It's one of the most important breweries in America and they don't exist anymore. And so collecting these now is so valuable. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased that you're an op, you're a place where people can park that stuff uh when breweries go away uh or you know whatever um and i Mm -hmm. I encourage people who are listening if you have a brewery um to to consider this as a place a landing place for your your information because it's it's once it's gone it's gone and uh we we would love to see that stuff so i'm i'm so happy you have that stuff yeah and i think um i think honestly there were (laughs) COVID was disruptive for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think I look forward to connecting with some of the people that I had connected with. And then there was this sort of hard stop on travel and hard stop on the physical, <laughs> getting the physical stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely there, the, the collection that I got right before we shut down, um, the big collection is the Widmer Brothers collection. Oh, good. You um, got that. I'm so happy. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, It was that, yes, it it was a, it's a huge collection. It's um, amazingly, amazingly valuable. There are photos and the, the, those brewing records. um, And I have barely gone through it. It, it was the, the thing that I was going to work on in the spring and then we know what happened. Mm. Um, But I think there are other, other collections. We did this project, um, one of the first collections I got were some coaster and kind of um, art materials from McMinimins. And we did this project um, where I scanned the first like 2000 ish brew sheets from their first five pubs. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's pretty easy. They're not full text searchable. They're not, I, I don't, I don't think that would work. I think because there's so much handwriting, it's um, running the recognition software on them probably won't work. Um, but my daughter who was 11 at the time, two different summers, she inventoried them. So I would scan them and then she put them in a, um, a like an Excel spreadsheet and then could talk about beer stuff that was just hilarious. Like <laughs> her knowledge. She went, John Richen was still the brewing manager at McMinimins at the time. And I'll never forget we were returning some and she was like sharing all of her favorite beer names. <laughs> Very cool. This is a hilarious thing to be happening. Um, so, <laughs> That's a good Oregonian story right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I think those, those types of, yeah, those brew sheets, there's a, um, process and ingredients and even just from like a the evolution of the form um and how those how they were those the brewers in the 1980s were thinking about what those documents even looked like um that a lot of them are just on um they're just on note paper. I think McMinimins used a lot of yellow note paper I'm trying to remember (laughs) what color the the um the widmer ones are um i have this very little box of brewing logs that are just like I, I, they're just little gems um that i haven't gone through yet but yeah i think those those records are are what people want and i think when people do research now um and and i i will say that the scope of the archive is was initially um, Oregon hops through time. So back to, um, the first planting in the 1860s, the, the sort of commercial hop industry. And then initially I thought that it would, that what was really important to collect were the, the sort of post craft. Um, so post 1980, um, kind of era of, of beer records until I realized that nobody had really saved or organized the pre-prohibition records either. Mm. Um, and so it's it's my own research actually focuses more on that pre-prohibition period, um, but those records are just entirely gone. And I think the 
even the Henry Weinhardt's records are entirely gone. Mm. So these like huge, this huge brewery that was here for uh, a really, really long time. Yeah, 150 um, years or something. They're all gone. And I think the, that was a, a, when people asked me about things like recipes, that was the, by far the, the biggest um, topic, I guess, of reference question that I got was about recipes. And I would say we can make some guesses. <laughs> um, you know, there are certain things that we know that are fixed variables, like Cascade as a hop didn't exist. So they weren't using that. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So I think those, I, I still, I, I do worry about, um, those things disappearing now too. Yeah. Well, if you're a, if you're a, a worker at the Weinhardt brewery who grabbed those archives and shoved them in your basement uh, and you're listening to this, <laughs> please let Tia know. And <laughs> that would be a great discovery. One, one uh, speaking of, of uh, records in your basement, one collection that you have that's uh, kind of precious for Oregonians is the Fred Eckhart uh, papers. Um, will you tell us a little bit about those and how you came across those? Yeah, uh, so I should say I, just to introduce this, Fred Eckhart is the famous beer writer who lived in Portland um, and wrote uh, about beer starting in the 1960s, I think, he is about to tell us uh, until his death. So, yeah, now go ahead. Yeah. And he so he he was um, he was somebody that I actually initially connected with through John Foyston and John Foyston, um, who is an Oregonian beer writer and um, Tim Hills, who is the McMinimans, is the McMinimans historian. Um, and then Peter, who had written this book on Hoptopia, we were all going to interview um, Fred Eckhart in 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peter got sick and I had to, I, I, I got to slash had to interview him. And I was so nervous. I was so nervous. <laughs> and I picked him up at his house. And so I'm like dissociating as we're driving and I'm driving <laughs> Fred Eckhart in my car. Um, and so, so I, I interviewed him um, and um, he passed away within the next year and a half, I think. I'm not remembering exactly when in the year that I interviewed him. Um, but I got contacted by the, the, um, the executor of his estate and they were on a relatively short timeline to sell the house. So it was very much like, can you come right now? And I said, yes, I have a Subaru. Um, so I can pack everything in my Subaru. Um, and I do know how many boxes you can fit in a Subaru out back. Um, So I, um, initially the, the first run of things that, um, I mean, I just, I basically just said, yes, they had separated out some stuff. Um, he, he, Fred did a lot of things, um, including teaching swimming lessons. Um, he was a Zen Buddhist. So there were things related to, to that. Um, he was a photographer, so there was, um, stuff related to his work. Um, so I, um, said yes to all of the things that were beer related. I honestly would have taken all of the things, but I think they were, they, they were, what they wanted to donate was the, the stuff related to beer. Um, so there are, in, so in the collection, that first set that I brought home, um, brought home, I brought to, to my library home. home. <laughs> yeah. They're in my, under my bed. Um, so the, in that first set were all of his, um, drafts for all of his articles, um, he did lots of research. So his research files were there. Um, he took lots of pictures. So there are, are lots of um, both print pictures and um, slides of him traveling um, to breweries. I would say that the majority of those are mid 1980s to early 2000s. Um, he also was a home brewer. And um, so he would receive lots of um, like newsletter publications from homebrewing associations or like um, clubs around the, around the country. Those are pretty terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, the other part of his collection though, that I, I went to pick up um, actually on Christmas Eve um, w- were all of his periodicals. So he had um, 
boxes and boxes of periodicals that he saved. So some of those periodicals stayed as part of his collection. And then some of them went to this kind of catch-all collection where we house all the periodicals. Um, so he saved, he saved a lot. He saved everything. He saved his travel receipts when he would go places, um, to give talks or, um, any expenses that he had because he was self-employed. He saved receipts, like these terrific receipts of like every time he would go to the airport, he would get a hot dog at the airport. And like, <laughs> and so, I, so by the end of this, I had a student who processed this collection with me. And by the end of it, we, we, we felt like we knew him in a way <laughs> that was a little bit weird um, because we didn't know him, but we did know him. Um, so he he saved essentially what was the early record of microbrewing um, in Oregon, mm-hmm. and um, also saved. He he was the sort who would print out his emails. So there's some some terrific emails and correspondence like that. Um, there's also stuff um, related to sake. So he did um, he wrote and made sake as well, and that's that's a part that I keep trying to get people to. <laughs> look at and to research um so lots of pictures of that um some of my favorite things are from his publications he did a lot of self-publishing and so there are um he wrote the amateur brewer and listen to your beer and um oh something of something other clever about your beer um but he so he wrote his own made his own publications and he was very crafty and he would um like for his publications, he cut out like the labels on malt cans hmm. and then would like hot glue or glue them to like uh, car- like construction paper. <laughs> and so there are all of these like original construction paper um, um, art. They're not art projects, but they're like art. They're terrific. They're so like, <laughs> sort of like like you think about early publishing and like mimeographing, you know, where you're like taping the letterhead on because we don't have word. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's an amazing collection. It's an absolutely amazing collection. That's really cool. um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's terrific and full of personality. And, uh, and it includes this, this uh, interview with, with Fred, which is uh, something I I haven't listened to yet, but um, it's, I keep meaning to, do that so uh you're keeping people alive that way through their voices which is also critically important and takes me to this next part of your your archive which may ultimately end up being the thing that uh, people appreciate most about it which is the these oral histories that you've been doing uh will you kind of tell us about the evolution of those and who you choose and uh, kind of like you know you in this way, you're really uh, you have a lot of power because you get to be the one who decides which voices are preserved. So tell us how you yeah. do that. Yeah, and I think as as an archivist, this is probably the the place where I do see the most like solid through line to that early academic work that I did um, in my lit masters, thinking about um, voices and silences and who is in the record um, and who gets put in archives is something that now I think a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, I decided that I wanted to do some interviews um, and I asked Carl Okert, um, you know, who, who should I interview Carl? And he said, interview my wife. And I said, okay. <laughs> so, so the first interview that I did was with Carol, um, Carl's wife. And um, I went to her house on a Saturday and it, when she told the story, this, the perspective of Bridgeport, um, like Bridgeport's origin from her perspective uh. um, was fabulous. And I remember at one point he came in, like he'd gone shopping, you know, and he, <laughs> was like putting the groceries away and I'm like this is a weird thing um, <laughs> so so I interviewed her first um and I think he I, I, I credit him like like strongly credit him um with saying to me the people who weren't the brewers are important voices that aren't being captured because 
people interview the brewers or people interview the owners. Um, and that really shifted my perspective on whose voice I wanted to capture. So that's not to say that I haven't also interviewed people who are brewers or who are owners, but I think that was that, that first interview and that perspective on that first interview felt like a very intentional choice about who I would interview. Um, I uh, did eventually interview Carl. It was a sort of joke at the beginning of the interview, like, well, you finally got around to me. Um, And I think it was like three years later. (laughs) Um, So I, so I, I, um, some of the the first interviews I did, I did interview Fred. I interviewed um, Terry Farndorf who started the Pink Boots Society. Um, I interviewed uh, Gail Goshi, who's a, a hop uh, farmer and Blake Crosby. Blake was actually my second interview. Um, who's also in hops. Um, so it was sort of in, initially it was, I, I would ask the person that I was interviewing, who else should I talk to? Right. Um, because I didn't, I didn't know anything. Honestly, I knew about Oregon cause I had grown up here, but I wasn't a beer person. Um, my family in the, the sort of early, um, 20th century grew hops, but like that, it wasn't like, I didn't come from a farming family. (laughs) Um, so, so I think I really was very much dependent on the person that I was interviewing, telling me who else I should interview. Um, so it kind of, it was, I would like to say that there was some like big, very, very well thought out plan, um, of who came next, but it was, it kind of wasn't. Um, it was who interested me. Um, and then pretty soon people just started saying yes, <laughs> um, that I would ask them and then they would say yes. And there was no kind of wrangling around about whether people would say yes. And that was pretty exciting. So I, I will say that I have focused strongly on interviewing women in the industry. Um, and if you looked at the the kind of gender balance in who I've interviewed, um, it would definitely, you would have a very, very different view of, of the gender composition of the industry. Um, so I think that was, that was a certainly a, a guiding light. Um, I had a, a couple of good luck connections. One was, um, with Michelle McKay, who I, she's a, a, um, from a farming family, um, and I call her hop royalty because she um, was a McKay and a Coleman <laughs> and, and they, they are hop people um, in the Mount Angel Silverton area. Um, and um, so she connected me with a lot of growers that were not the very public facing growers. Um, so people not like Gail Goshi or Blake Crosby, who are interviewed a lot, but people like her dad, Mark McKay, who just isn't interviewed a lot. So I got this kind of almost back end access. The other um, connection that was good was um, Deschutes was having their 30th anniversary um, and they needed an intern to process through their company records. And so I supervised from the archival perspective and then somebody at Deschutes supervised from the on-site company perspective. And there was an intern who was there for two different summers. And I did a lot of interviews. Um, I went four different times and had these interview blitzes in Bend um, with people related to Deschutes, which essentially means everyone in Bend. Right. Um, <laughs> So, so I had a, an opportunity to do a deep dive into Central Oregon as a place to um, just because I was there. So, yeah, there are uh, 115 interviews. The last I did was December 2019, which kind of blows my mind um, because that was a long time ago. Um, and I think I, I'm sort of getting ready to think about interviewing people again. Um, I, I felt like it was not the time for an archivist to be in people's lives and in their spaces um, when the industry was struggling with COVID in the way that it was. And I think I'm starting to feel like, okay, it probably will be time um, to start connecting with people again to do interviews. And we can do it like this. I can sit in my room and do it um, and they can sit in their room and do it. So yeah, yeah. It's an amazing collection. It's again, something that I think um, 
I now I'm realizing in hindsight how incredibly important it is as a record. It totally is. Um, Patrick, do you, I've been, I've been uh, dominating the conversation. Do you have a question? Well, I actually just out of personal curiosity, did you ever get a chance to interview uh, Jack Joyce at Rogue? I did not. I did not. And that is one that like, it was, it, it's such a strange, um, in that way, people, <laughs> people don't stay around forever. Yeah. Um, and I, there, there is a certain thought that I have now, um, that I, I do think about, I think about age. Yeah. Um, your cop did interview him for his Hoptopia book. And so I, I think that will come to us. I think once, once Peter's a little bit farther on in his career, yeah. <laughs> um, and thinks about his personal papers. So he did interview him, which is, is terrific. Um, so I know there is an interview with him. Yeah. He's one of the, the true originals and early people in Oregon Brewing. So <clears throat> he's a, he, he, he would have been, would have been a great interview. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was a character, and and there are a lot of those characters. And I, I I'm really pleased that you have focused on women because um, it is a, a a perspective that is so often overlooked. Um, and Oregon has this incredible richness of women who've been involved in the industry. I, I, you you mentioned Terry Farendorf, who was founded the Pink Booth Society, was also a brewer. Did you did you also interview Melly Pullman? Have you interviewed her? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. Another yes. another great early brewer here uh, who lives in Oregon, and um, yeah, and then Gail Goshi you mentioned, and all these all these figures who are the kind of people who often get overlooked. Uh, so yeah, yeah, and I think one thing that it, there's the historical record side, but I do also want to say something that is makes me feel good as a person and a professional is that there's the the personal value that people feel when you say your story is valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed Beth Hart who, um, or Beth Hartwell, who was the, one of the, the co-founders of Hart Brewing in Kalama, right. Washington. Which, which um, is and, yeah. And she, um, I interviewed her a couple of years ago. She brought me Quince jam. It was very lovely. Um, <laughs> she was at a point where she, she completely left brewing. She and um, her, her ex-husband Tom had a terrible, terrible divorce. Um, And she left the industry and she is probably the first co-owner of a brewery, the first female co-owner of a brewery post prohibition. So she's a big deal. Mm. (laughs) Um, and she left because she, and and didn't tell people even as the 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 brewing industry certainly was on a, a growth trajectory she didn't tell people who she was and i think that she was at a point to feel like she could tell her story um was important to me it was important to her but it was also really important to me um and to be able to record those stories so people can can have that time to reflect on their impact beyond what they did in beer, I think is just, it's really important. Um, Fred Eckhart didn't talk a whole lot about beer. And I remember in the interview thinking, Oh crap, I'm doing this wrong. (laughs) I'm doing this wrong. But he talked about being in the military and ultimately that is the story that's not saved um, right. because everybody asked him about beer. Right. He's talked about beer. He talked about beer for 40 years. We, we've heard yeah. that part. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Tia, this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And and I'm glad that we got you on here because uh, people around the world should, should know that this uh, archive exists. It, it definitely focuses on the Pacific Northwest, but it is valuable to anybody who's interested in beer. Um, and you have material that uh, is, is not just Pacific Northwest specific. So uh, thank you so much for assembling this and joining us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And go visit Corvallis, everyone. <laughs> once once you're allowed that's right yeah, yeah that's right once you're allowed come visit Corvallis <laughs> <laughs> yeah go see those archives all right thank you so much yeah, yeah thank, thank you Tia you. well we'd like to thank Tia for joining us and spending uh, the best better part of an hour with us that was really interesting indeed uh, Tia's work is really cool I've been um, involved with her a little bit in her project. So I've, I've had a chance to watch it from a distance. 
um, and had, had planned to have her on the show, as we say so often, uh, many, many moons ago. So I'm glad we got her on. Yeah, she re- reached out to me years and years ago as she was getting started um, and uh, was interested in what I knew or had to say and I didn't feel like I knew or had to say anything so I kind of I kind of uh, blew her off which I uh, I feel bad about now but I still don't think I had anything to say and uh, don't now I uh, think you probably do and I, I, I you I would encourage you if she asks you to do one of those interviews to do it um, she full disclosure she did do one of them with me and we didn't talk that much about beer uh, we talked about my life as a writer which was interesting so um, she might talk about your life as a an economist, uh, which I think would be an interesting way to inform the work that you do here on the podcast and elsewhere. So you should do it. Yeah, perhaps. Anyway, I'll take this moment now to apologize to her for <laughs> for uh, sort of politely ducking <laughs> ducking her attempts. But anyway, I just uh, when she first started it, I thought this is an incredibly great idea. Like this is exactly what someone at Oregon State Library should be doing, and um, we'll be better for it in the long run. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And, um, you know, it's priceless. Uh, once once some of the stuff is gone, it's gone. So it's yeah. amazing. So uh, we've sort of run out of time. I think we'll punt the mailbag to next week. Uh, apologies for those who sent uh, questions and comments in. We will get to them. Uh, just uh, hang on. Um, we appreciate them as always. We just have sort of run short of time. So um, keep doing it. Keep sending stuff in. Yes. All right. Well, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. (laughs) That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments, as we mentioned, to jeff at beervanablog.com, or on Twitter, we are at beervanapod. Jeff blogs at the Blog, and he tweets at beervana. And Patrick tweets at beeronomics. Uh, we have nothing to cheers with this time because we, we recorded early uh, and uh, spent our time talking to Tia. But, um, you know, I have a mug of tea in front of me that's more or less gone, but we can cheers with that. Yeah, I have uh, I have a, an empty cup of coffee here and an empty cup of yesterday's coffee. So because <laughs> it's kind of collecting here in the, <laughs> well, the, that, the if home that's office. Not a- if that's not a COVID story, I don't know what it is. That's right. So I'll, I'll clink those together as <laughs> we like. of dirty mugs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff. Yeah. Well, uh, until next week, cheers. Cheers. That's my knuckle. <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs> All right. See you later. Bye. Bye.